Today's sermon text is Luke 1, 1 through 4, and it can be found in the Bible and the rack in front of you on page 855. Hear the word of the Lord. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let me pray for us as we look to God's word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word. We, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who you sent to inspire this word and even this morning to help us know, understand it, see Christ in it. And we pray that you would do that this morning through your word. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I hope many of you had good Thanksgiving weeks. I know many of you were with friends and family, had full tables that uh, you delighted in. And for, for those of you whose tables maybe were not as full as you hoped, I just want to tell you, I don't get lots of moments of personal privilege, so I'll take this briefly. I'm so thankful for you, members of Philadelphia Baptist Church, just grateful to God this past week. Uh, Laura remarked multiple times, even on Thanksgiving Day, my kids remarked several times how thankful we were for for you and for what you've meant uh, in our lives and how you've been exceptionally kind to us over the past year. So we're, we're thankful to God for you. Uh, one thing that a certain member of my family is thankful for is the start of a new sermon series. Uh, there's actually probably multiple members of my family who are thankful for the start of a new sermon series. And part of that is because every week I try to find some time to sit down after dinner. Usually we open the Bible. We try to read through the sermon passage for that coming week. And it's always good for me to hear what questions my kids are asking, what Laura is thinking and looking at, which uh, for the past several weeks has taken us a little while because we've read like two to three chapters of text. And so this week we sat down and read four verses and we talked about them a little. And one of my very precious children looked at me and said, Dad, does this mean your sermon is going to be shorter on Sunday? And I'll tell you what I told uh, them, him or her, to keep the guilty nameless. Uh, I can make no promises, but I'll we'll see. I do love the book of Luke. I'm really grateful that I'm, I'm excited about turning to the book of Luke as well. It's I've said for a while, it's probably my one of my favorite is my favorite gospel account that we have. Uh, there are so many things kind of in common between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the synoptic gospels. They're kind of looking at things the same lens a lot of times. A lot of stories that are told in all three gospels. But but Luke has in it, in the gospel a lot of stories that are just unique to Luke. Uh, I don't know if you're kind of aware. Some of these you're very aware of. Some of these you may. Not remember that it's only in the book of Luke that we have some of these things. So over the next few weeks, as we look at the extended birth narrative and the angelic announcement from the, uh, from angels to the shepherds, it's only here. 
Uh, Jesus visiting at the house of Mary and Martha. Zacchaeus, the wee little man, is only here. Uh, Some of the most well-beloved parables that Jesus tells are found only in Luke. The prodigal son, the good Samaritan, Lazarus and the, uh, the rich man. The Pharisee and the tax collector praying at the temple. Uh, we, we talked about this earlier in core training. Jesus appearing to some disciples on the road to Emmaus only happened here. But before launching into this narrative that Luke wants to tell, he, he begins with this short four-verse prologue, which is also unique. There's no other gospel that starts with this kind of, here's who I am, here's what I'm writing, here's who I'm writing to. None of the Gospels start with this kind of introduction, so why does Luke start with it? And why are we going to pause and take a whole Sunday to look closely at four short verses? Well, here's, here's the main point. I think it's the, maybe the shortest one yet, if you want to think the main point of this passage, is that you can have confidence in the Bible. That's, that's it. That's what I want to convince you of today. You can have confidence in what you read in this book. Now, many of you already feel very assured of that. So this is like a refresher course for you. But if you have questions about that, if you're curious about that, I hope this sermon helps to point out why we can look to this and trust what it says. Uh, the ESV translation that we use, that you heard Ashley read, uh, this, it sticks very close to the Greek. So when I sat down to read this to my kids and I said the first word, which is in as much, I went, what does in as much mean? <laughs> I don't think I've ever used the word in as much in a sentence. So we're going to organize our time together just around a few questions. Okay, four questions that I want to ask of this text and try to answer. So what's the book about? How did we get it? Why was it written? And then what should we do with it? You should find that on your note sheet just to walk through the text. In my prayer, what I, what I hope that we all have as we leave this morning, whether you're a Christian who has been reading your Bible faithfully for decades, or maybe you're a younger Christian, a newer Christian, and, and you're just learning some of the basics of the faith, you're seeing what Christ is like, or if you're totally new, and you're just curious about what Christianity is, if you wandered off the streets into this church because you know it talks about Christianity, we're grateful you're here, but... We want you to leave. I pray that we would all leave with greater confidence that we serve a trustworthy God who has spoken to us in this word. That's what I'm praying and I hope that we see in our time together. Now, in in starting a new book, there's always going to be a few things that we just talk about. I'm going to talk about this here. I'm not going to talk about this really probably for the rest of Luke. uh, But we'll talk about some of the purpose that the book was written for in the prologue in just a few minutes. But two questions just up front. One is like, who is this guy writing this book? Who is the author, Luke? Uh, Luke's name never appears in the gospel itself, although most of the copies we have of this book from the second century, from the third century, have his name as the very beginning, like this is the gospel according to Luke. But Luke, if you're unaware, was a physician. He was a doctor who traveled around with Paul. So you find his name in a few of Paul's greetings in Colossians and Philemon and Second Timothy. And then in the book of Acts, you'll find that the author of Acts writes a few sections. And he says, not Paul was out doing this thing, but he says, as we were traveling to Troas or to Macedonia, he uses this first person plural, we. And so you kind of put all that together. You say, OK, here, Luke, it is this guy, Luke, who is writing this letter. And that's not a lot of information 
But that's kind of all we got. It, ultimately, the book is not about Luke. He's, he's just like the, the uh, court transcriber. He's just writing about what has come, which we'll get to in a minute. And the second question you may ask as you heard the book read is, who is this guy, Theophilus? He uh, appears only here in Luke. He also appears in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And that's why we'd say the book of Luke and the book of Acts were written by the same person to the same person. It was written by Luke to Theophilus. Uh, all we really know about him, he's called Most Excellent Theophilus, which is not something that I call uh, just like normal Joe, that I say, Most Excellent David, good to see you. Uh, he is likely someone who has a position of authority. Uh, some people would say maybe he even uh, he gave Luke the money to write this. It's not really cheap to write books. You don't have a typewriter. You don't kind of self-publish. You need somebody to sponsor this. So perhaps he is the one who became a Christian and said, I want to know everything. Not just the, the few things I hear. I want to know it all. And so Luke is writing this for Theophilus and for those who would read it after him, like you and me. And that brings us to the prologue, which I think is going to answer a lot of kind of the introductory questions that we, we want to ask. And I want to begin with asking, what's the Gospel of Luke about? So the question of content. Uh, what is Luke and what can we expect to find in the pages of Luke? And here I just want to pull two phrases, two phrases to pay attention to in these four verses. And the first one is there in verse one. This is a book about the things that have been accomplished among us. Or as I think your handout and many other translations would say, the things that have been fulfilled among us. And when Luke writes that phrase in verse one, he's saying that there's actually a lot of other people who have already written narratives about this, showing here's what's been accomplished and fulfilled among us. And so Luke is wanting to do that same, same thing. In verse three, Luke says, all these people have written this kind of narrative. It seemed good to me also. I want to write this kind of book, a book telling us about the fulfillment of what has been done. And that's important. It tells us what kind of history this is. Okay, so this is not just a history textbook. I, I love history, but I felt like most of my, uh, my history tests through lots of school was like, I have to memorize dates and names. And if I can memorize dates and names, I'm going to be good. Luke is not all that concerned about dates and names. He's not a bad history textbook writer. He's concerned about what has been fulfilled, what's been accomplished. And, and you can say, well, the fulfillment or the accomplishment of, of what? Uh, I, want, I want to show you just in a few places what Luke is pointing you to. Okay, so if you want to turn there, you can to Luke 4, 16. Should just be a few pages on in your Bible. Uh, I've got, I think, the at least one verse in your note sheet if you want to just look there. But, but Luke is going to highlight what he means when he says this is about the fulfillment of these things. So Luke 4, starting in verse 16, this is, this is in the Gospel of Luke, like the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, you may remember the story. Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth, and he goes into a synagogue, and the way that kind of the synagogue service works is he reads a passage from one of the prophets, and then he gives a sermon. That's not always how it works, but that's what happens here. So he goes and the sermon text for the day that he finds is Isaiah 61. And that, this is verse 18 in Luke 4. So Jesus reads out of Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Luke, uh, rather Jesus, sits down and he gives his first sermon. And this is a five-word sermon, so maybe your speed perfectly. Five words in the Greek. This is his sermon. Today, this scripture, Isaiah 61, has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that's it. That, that's, that is it. He's saying this scripture, and not just Isaiah, I think all of the Old Testament is pointing to him. It's finished and fulfilled in him. Jesus there. So if I get up ever and read an Old Testament text and say today this is fulfilled in your hearing, you should probably fire me. Not probably. You should fire me. But Jesus is showing that he's not just a rabbi who's come to do a few things. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. He's claiming that God's story is pointing to and ultimately culminating in him. So that's how he begins, and I just want to show you why this is so important. So if you want to turn to Luke 24, so go to the very back of, of the Gospel of Luke. Okay, Luke 4 is like Jesus' first public proclamation in the Gospels. He's ta- he speaks a few other times, but this is his first teaching, is that this is fulfilled in me. Look at Luke 24 and turn to verse 44. So Jesus has appeared to his disciples. He shows he's alive. He has a resurrected body. Uh, People are like, I don't know if this is actual Jesus. Is this a ghostly Jesus? And it says he actually eats a piece of fish to prove that it's not just a ghost. And then in verse 44, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me. And the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened his, their minds to understand the scriptures. So if you want to answer the question of what is this book about, it's not a mere biography of Jesus. It's not like you go read ancient Greek mythology or a biography that just lists some of his great deeds. Or you just go pick up a a book by David McCullough on John Adams and peruse through that. This gospel reveals that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the hopes and promises of the Old Testament. We're going to be constantly referring back to the Old Testament scripture and saying, this is what God has sent his son to complete and to fulfill. And this is one reason, by the way, why we spend time preaching out of the Old Testament and one thing that shapes the way we preach the Old Testament. So if you thought we were talking about Jesus a lot in First Samuel, it's because I think that's what Jesus says we should be doing with our Old Testament, is looking at it and saying, this is pointing to him. And Luke wants to convince Theophilus and convince us that all the things that you read about, the promises made back there, They're ultimately pointing to and coming to fulfillment in him. Now, the second phrase to pay attention to, so this is a fulfillment story, but it's also an orderly account. Uh, I'm I'm sure that you've, you've experienced this, you've seen this in action, but when you say something is often just as important as what you say. 
I think it's the, the comedian Brian Regan who talks about how he poorly responds to people sometimes. So you're sitting at a table and your waiter brings you your dinner and sets it out and says, enjoy your dinner. And you say, you too. Whenever you get your dinner and a break in a little bit, it, you too enjoy that. Or, or you're at a funeral and you go through a receiving line and someone says, thank you so much for coming. And you say, I'm so happy to be here. It's not the right time to say that kind of thing, right? Well, Luke is telling us up front, he's, building, he's been and is being really thoughtful in what he's including in his gospel and how he arranges it. Okay, so he starts at the very beginning. We're going to work through the birth all the way to the resurrection of Jesus. And Luke is going to arrange this to kind of highlight things we need to know. Even that story in Luke 4, uh, in the other Gospels, that happens kind of in the middle of Jesus' ministry. And here Luke pushes it to the very first thing that Jesus says because he wants to show us this is about the fulfillment of Christ. It's not Luke lying to us. It's him ordering his account so that we can see what Christ has done. It's him putting this in the foreground so that we can see that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's purposes. So what is this book about? If you want this in a nutshell, this is an orderly account of God fulfilling his promises in Christ. This is an orderly account of God fulfilling his promises in Jesus. I, uh, I do love books. If you go to my office, I have a lot of books. I love talking about books. If I'm really bad at small talk with you, you can just ask me a question about what I'm reading and I'll just open up. But I I also love when people ask me questions about books. Uh, So I'll get emails or texts from people, even in this church, saying I'm I'm talking to a friend going through some anxiety. What What should I be reading? I'm looking for a whole Bible commentary, just one volume that I can work through different texts that I need help with. I love when people ask, I I have a friend who I'm talking to about Jesus who doesn't know a lot about Christ. Whether that's an international student that they're discipling, whether that is someone who maybe just heard the name Jesus growing up but doesn't know about what he has done, who he is. And oftentimes they'll say, what book should I read? And I'm just going to tell you, there's not a better book than Luke. Just go straight here. This is the book given to us so that we can see like a whole Bible theology. From old to new, pointing this one grand story by the Spirit's inspiration, which is better than any book I can hand you off my shelf. This is who Jesus is, and this is what he has come to do, to fulfill everything that has been written of him. And if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, we would invite you to not take our word for who this Jesus is. I hope that if you leave here that you would want to dig into this book more. To see what Christ has done for you, not because I tell you, but because this book tells you that. And anybody here, I'm sure, would love to read through this with you. So if you're not a Christian, please come find me after the service. Find any Christian you came here with, and we would love to tell you how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the hopes and promises of the Old Testament. How he is our Savior, who came to die And rise again to give us life. So that's what this book is about. Now, second question. Maybe a little bit more technical of a question, but how did we get the Gospel of Luke? We we have this. We know what it's about. You've read the book before, probably. But how did we come to have this book? Especially thinking about who wrote this book. Okay, So if you're talking about the book of Matthew, 
Matthew's one of the twelve disciples. It's, it's fairly easy to say, well, Matthew probably wrote a lot of this out of his own recollection. But how did a guy who lived a few decades after, who traveled with Paul, who probably never saw Jesus in the flesh, how does he come to write one of the four Gospels? That's a big deal. Well, Luke himself is going to give us three answers. So three answers here and then one additional answer I want to point us to as well. So first, Luke has access to eyewitness testimony. Luke has access to eyewitness testimony. That's what you see in verse 2. Those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have faithfully delivered this narrative about Jesus. So Luke has probably multiple written accounts that he can look at that are about Jesus. But more than that, he's living in a time where he can go actually talk to people and ask them questions about what happened. So we don't know exactly who he talked to, but... Maybe it's possible he went and talked to Zacchaeus, the wee little man, and asked him, now tell me everything. I want to record all of this down so people can hear it. Uh, one of my one of my favorite stories in Luke is the story on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, where he's talking to two disciples. And like Luke doesn't need to name anybody in that. He can just say, here's the story. But But he says, one of the disciples named Cleopas. And that's it. Then he just goes on to tell the story. Why drop that name there? Friends, I think Luke is, uh, I think that the way we say this today is he's keeping receipts, right? He is showing this is who I talked to, to get this story. If you don't believe me, go talk to Cleopas. So he has eyewitness testimony so that he is showing I'm not just making this stuff out of thin air. I'm doing what has happened. I'm showing what has happened from people who were there on the scene. He didn't have video cameras, didn't have things that we say, okay, that's how you prove it today. But he has the best thing. He has eyewitness testimony. Second, these eyewitnesses delivered the message to him. Okay, and that may sound underwhelming that he delivered this, but this word delivered is weightier than just kind of passing along some information. Uh, maybe you've played the game Telephone. Uh, I'm sure that most of the kids have played it. I've played Telephone at one point. So you get a line of people And at the very beginning, someone starts a phrase or says a phrase to the first person in line. So they say something like, I need to get new shoes. And then that person turns and says it to the person behind them, and it goes kind of down the line. And by the end, the person is saying, my left knee is so rude, or something that makes no real sense. There's a lot of people who would say that the Bible is like that. The Bible is like a bad game of telephone. Somebody's told, told some stories at one point, and then it just got blown out of proportion way down the line. But Luke is saying that's, that's not the way that Luke would say this happened. Okay, that word delivered there is like a technical term. It's not just like passed on kind of close, but like passed on faithfully. Uh, I think this is on your notes. So this is the, the way that Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. He says, I received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you. In other words, just as I learned it, I gave it to the next person, to you, from one to the other. It's not just kind of close enough. It's faithfully passed on from one to the other. Okay, so Luke has eyewitness testimony. People have faithfully delivered this message to him. And then third, Luke has followed all things closely, is what it says in the ESV. Maybe... um, Maybe you have known or maybe you have been a person who is a 
a procrastinator. And so you have a research paper that's coming due at the end of a semester. And you say at the beginning of the semester, I have so much time to do this. And I will figure this out. It will be fine. And then about 48 hours before, you realize that you don't even have a topic and so you do 10, you do like a Wikipedia hyperlink witch hunt kind of thing, and you find 10 articles, you make some sticky notes, and you throw something together. And really what it is, because I have done this, not often, but, but I have done this before, is you're just trying to throw as many words on a page until you hit that word limit, and then you just say, I'm done, and I've done it. Okay, that's, that's one way to write a paper. That's one way to compile a narrative. Uh, but think about a, a different way. Think about someone who's an artist. Uh, I read this this week about artist Norman Rockwell. So Norman Rockwell produced some of the most iconic works of art in American pop culture over the past century. Uh, one of his biographies tells about the lengths he went to for just this one painting, a painting called The Young Lady with the Shiner. It's just one painting that's supposed to be on the cover of Saturday Evening Post. It's a little girl who got in a fight at school, who's sitting outside of the principal's office, smiling mischievously with a black eye, as if she really got the better of the other little boy who's in there, and she won the fight. So Norman Rockwell had someone sit to be the little girl, but she didn't have a black eye, and he, he was just going to use some charcoal, and like, I'm just going to put some charcoal in her eye, and maybe that would be a good model. And that didn't work quite well enough. It's, it wasn't right. So he went to a local hospital and asked, do you have any eye patients that I can go look around for? And they didn't. And so one of his friends took out a newspaper advertisement. And I don't know that newspaper advertisements can go viral, but as much as it can in the 1940s and 50s, this went viral. And he got hundreds of people sending him pictures of their black eyes so that he could try to use their black eye on this painting until he found just the right one. This person drove up to his uh, his studio so that they could do it in person. This book, this is not Luke's like rough draft. This is not Luke throwing together some stuff in a hurry so that he can impress Theophilus. This is something he said he spent time and looked into carefully to make sure that everything was just right. As much as he could use his faculties and his skills even as a doctor... To write what is just right. He did that. So this is the, the way that NIV translates this is I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. He worked diligently to ensure that everything he wrote was accurate and thoughtful. Now, those are the three reasons that you can find here. Luke wants to say, here's how I got this. We have the whole Bible, and I don't want to just, I want to use the whole Bible. So let me give you a fourth reason why we as Christians would say that this is a faithful retelling. We would say that because this book was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There are a few places we could go to point that out, but let me just point two that are prominent. The references, not the verses, but at least the references are there on the note sheet. Second Peter 1, 21 says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Then 2 Timothy 3 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So, so we should have no problem saying that Luke used every bit of his efforts, all human ingenuity, every tool at his disposal, he used to get this right. And more than that, 
God, by his spirit, so oversaw Luke that he wrote exactly what God wanted him to write. And that's why we say this is in our statement of faith. The Bible has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. And that's why this question of how is important. It's why Luke dedicates so much of this long sentence to answering this question. I've never been in a courtroom, for which I'm really thankful. I know some of you have. If not, you've probably seen a TV drama, a, a movie about uh, courtroom drama. And when someone goes on the stand, what is it that they have to do very first? They have to raise their right hand and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that's what Luke is doing right here. Luke is showing that he is doing just that, telling the truth and nothing but the truth. And this is vitally important for our faith because truthfulness Even historical accuracy, it matters to us as Christians. Uh, In in the early 20th century, there was this movement among uh, some churches that's referred to as Protestant liberalism. Protestant liberalism said that progress in science and technology and history had led to a place where we couldn't really trust everything we find in the scriptures. So maybe there are some some things, especially in the Gospels, that we need to rethink. Because we live in an era with penicillin. Like there's no miracles. There's just there's just antibiotics. And so things like the virgin birth of Jesus, the miraculous works that he did, and maybe most tryingly, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, these people said instead of taking these things literally. We should maybe reinterpret these things. We should figure out how these things work now that we know that they're not true. And even though they doubted the historical accuracy of the Bible, many of these, these early proponents of Protestant liberalism, they, they said that they were Christians. They, they just had to take these truths and kind of transpose them into a different key. So the resurrection is not about Jesus bodily rising from the dead. It's about our kind of spirits Spiritually rising one day, being elevated from our position of dead in our sins to being enlightened. And ultimately, they thought that if they were do that, if they would just kind of make these things that they found embarrassing, if they made them believable, then maybe that would draw people in. It would make the Bible more relevant and people would come streaming into their churches. But but if you test that theory now about a hundred years after that after that you can see denominations and churches that began to teach have slowly declined and continue to do so because ultimately if all the bible has for us is just a really moral way of living or like a worldview rubric that we can view things happening around us through there are a lot of other alternatives that are not nearly this difficult to believe or this difficult to obey And so as the historical accuracy, the historical reliability of the Bible was pushed aside, people turned to other places to self-help, to maybe just the the kind of Jeffersonian Bible, a Bible that's devoid of anything miraculous but just tells me how to live. And ultimately that kind of Bible is not good news. 
Because Christianity ultimately depends upon accuracy, upon historical accuracy even. It's why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And later in verse 32, he just says, if the dead aren't raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So if this story, if this gospel account and this book is not true, we, friends, have wasted a lot of our time. And we should just shut it down and go ahead and go home. And that's why Luke tells us all of this. I want you to know that this is true, Luke says. This is not hearsay. This is not something that is thrown together. This is bedrock truth. Something that Luke The rest of the early disciples, the rest of the church from then to now have banked and built their lives upon. And that we have done so as well. Uh, One pastor, Pastor Thabiti Anwabile, he puts it this way. Friend, the only things worth believing are true things. Religions can be beautiful. They can contain a lot of good. But if they are false, then they are futile. A person's faith is only as good as the object he rests his faith on. We can be confident in what we believe only if what we believe is true. It matters that this book is true. And Luke wants to convince us, the Bible wants to convince us that this is true. And that leads to this third question. So why spend all that time? Why even bring this up? This is the third and the briefest point. This is a question about intent. So what does Luke hope this book would give to you and to me, to Theophilus? And in a word, he hopes that this book would bring confidence, certainty. That's what that's what he says there in verse four. He is writing this that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So all of this argument builds to this. You can trust. You can trust that this word is certain and true. It is worth living and dying for. As many as we read in the gospel actually go to prove that this is worth living and dying for with their very lives. Go read accounts in church history of people who gave their lives not just so that this world this word would be preserved, but so that we could have this book in English even. We can have confidence that God has sustained his word all the way through to us. And with that answer, that this book is written to give you confidence, I want to ask just the final question. So what should I do with Luke? What should you do with Luke? How do we treat this going forward? And I, I'm, I'm saying this about Luke because I'm a pastor and I like symmetry. Let me just scratch out Luke and write the Bible if you want to. OK, what should we do with the Bible? Knowing what we've looked at today, how now do we approach this book? Okay, so first thing, read it. That's it. That's, that's the tweet. Read it. That's all. If a doctor gives you medicine and you read all of the instructions about the medicine, you know every side effect and even memorize it. Uh, if you go find other people who have taken the kind of medicine and say, did this help? Is there a different medicine I should take? You even fulfill the prescription and you set it in your medicine cabinet and you never take the medicine. It never does you any good. Friends, I'm afraid sometimes that we like it is easier to know about Jesus than to try to actually know Jesus. 
to actually want to know him, to be transformed by him. And so I want to encourage you to read your Bibles. I, I had a friend who in high school, uh, I, I think he liked being known as someone who knew lots of things. And so he would be walking down the hallway and he had like a thousand page systematic theology book for a year or so that he just kind of lugged everywhere he went. And he, he I think, knew lots of theology. And then I, I did, I remember asking him at one point, uh, when do you read your Bible? And he told me, I read it when I, when I feel like it. And, and I, uh, I imagine that today he probably could spout out systematic theology maybe better than I can. But he also is not walking following Jesus today. He, he, he knew a lot about him. But he, but he never actually dug into this book. He, he loved to know knowledge and did not delight in knowing Jesus. So here's, here's this really low-hanging fruit. Like if you want to know, how do I go apply this passage today? Just go read your Bibles. That's all. That's so good and so freeing. It's really simple. Kids, I know some of you, like, are, some of you in here can't read yet. That's fine. Your parents can, I'm pretty sure. Your parents can read. And if not, go find, like, a good audio Bible. Listen to it. Have this reverberating in your minds. And for those of you who can read, even kids, this is a time where you're starting habits that you're gonna carry for a lifetime. Adults delight in reading this. This word is a treasure. And we want to honor it and know more about Jesus by reading it. I love, I told you, I love books. I will give you all sorts of books about Jesus. But you have to promise me that you're reading this book above those books. Okay? Okay, so read this book. Second, trust this book. Trust this book. That's Luke's plain intention in writing. He wants to give confidence to his audience and to us that we can trust this. Now, I, I am certain that some of us have walked through seasons of doubt. There, there have been times when we wonder if this story is really true. Because we're, we're banking a lot on that fact, right? We're, we're banking our lives on the fact that this is a true story. And sometimes the prevailing advice, the opinion you might get is that if you have those doubts, you just shove them as deep as you can and turn your brain off and just walk in faith, but I just want to give some advice if you're in a season of doubt, a couple of encouragements. And one is not to run away from the Bible or from God's people for that matter. There will be people who will say, if you're struggling with doubt, don't go here. That's just trying to convince you. It's, it's biased. Yes, as are all the people trying to convince you that it's not true. You need to turn to this word. If you're in a season of doubt, you may at one point think, I'm the only person in the room who is struggling with this. You're not, friend. You are not. Tell a mature Christian friend, come tell one of the elders. Let us walk with you through this book and wrestle with doubt together. Don't don't run away from the Bible or from God's people. And second, this is this is for you if you're in a season of doubt. And this may just be helpful counseling material if you're talking to some people wrestling through seasons of doubt. Uh, maybe learn to question why you're doubting. Why is it that I'm doubting that this thing is true? Uh, there, there are certainly people who have intellectual questions. I want to know how on earth could this thing, this thing seems so improbable. I've never seen a person rise from the dead. How could it happen? 
Well, there's good reasons that we can walk through with those people. Sometimes, though, doubt is moral. It's not about intellectual. It's about, I really want to live my life in a certain way. And because of that, it's pretty convenient for me to doubt that this is true. Uh, sometimes doubts are just plain lazy. We just say, I, somebody told me this and I don't want to go investigate. The, the point is, not all doubt is created equal. I remember having a conversation with a young man who kept telling me he, he wasn't really sure if we could get to the bottom of this truth that I was trying to just open the Bible and say, I think this is very plain here. And he kept saying, we just can't know. We're just, we can't know if this is true or not. And I think while, while he thinks his, his doubt is intellectual, I think that his doubt was more due to peer pressure. Because I saw all the people around him who were asking that same kind of question and who were doubting this truth. And it honestly was just more convenient for him to go with them than to trust and to look at this word. So friends, you, I, I don't know what season you may be in. You may be, well, Laura, my wife, has like, I think, the spiritual gift of faith. So I have come at times and been like, this is really hard. She's like, believe it. It's, it's the Bible, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely it is. And I, some of you, though, may be walking through seasons where you have deep questions about what you find here. Don't run away from it. And don't run away from us. I promise. If you come to an elder or to a friend, we're not going to look at you like you're a crazy person. We're reading the same book as you. And sometimes we feel crazy, too. We want to turn with our doubts to this book. And not away from it. Uh, I like, again, this is Pastor Thabiti Anubile. If you have ever been told that to be a Christian, you must check your mind at the door. I'm here to tell you, somebody lied to you. Bring your mind to this book. And both your mind and your heart will be satisfied. Friends, bring your mind and the Lord can deepen your trust. So finally, last last way of thinking to how to apply this. We should spread this word. We should spread this book. This is actually a major theme in the book of Luke as we go. We'll see the gospel go. If you take Luke and Acts together, we see the gospel start at a cradle in Bethlehem and go all the way to the ends of the earth through Paul and his ministry labors. You see, even within just the Gospel of Luke, it go from Jews to Gentiles, from poor women to powerful men, from shepherds watching their flocks all the way to a thief hanging on a cross. The Gospel is not just some news among others. This is life-altering, world-shaking, give-up-your-life-to-pass-it-on-to-the-next-person kind of news. It's been passed on from eyewitnesses to many who wrote those accounts, and then to Luke, and then to Theophilus, and then to centuries of faithful Christians before us, all the way to you today. And why should it stop here? What a travesty if this word stops with us. So we should be praying that as our trust grows in this word, as we learn more about this Christ, that we would be propelled with his word to the end of our streets, to the end of the world, and to the end of time and every generation after us. Friends, I, I know I, I know many of you, and I know that this church specifically loves this book. I understand that most of what I've said this morning is not new to you. I hope, though, that you leave knowing that you can trust this. 
That this is not us just trusting something because we're looking, because we don't trust ourselves. It's trusting this because God has spoken. And we can bank everything on it, on this. I'm going to close with a, a quote from the great J.C. Ryle. He's a man I'm... I'll just assume you're going to be hearing lots of quotes from him over the course of this series. But Sal J.C. Ryle closed this portion of his commentary, and I thought it appropriate for this morning. Let us close the passage with thankfulness for the Bible. Let us bless God daily that we are not left dependent on man's traditions and need not be led astray by ministers' mistakes. Praise God. We have a written volume which is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Let us begin St. Luke's gospel with an earnest desire to know more ourselves, the truth as it is in Jesus, and with a hearty determination to do what in us lies to spread the knowledge of that truth throughout the world. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your wonderful words. We thank you that this is more than just somebody musing to us on how good their life has been, but somebody who has told us the truth. We thank you that we can see Christ in it and pray, even in this week, as we go to our homes, as we're reading the scripture, that you would convince us anew that you have done everything you promised and that we can trust you with our very lives. We love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.